Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 236 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Rebecca Smith. She is a clinical educator at Appalachian State University in the Beaver College of Health Sciences Interprofessional Clinic. She works in outpatient and acute care settings through ASU and teaches their pediatric dysphagia course in the graduate program. Rebecca is pursuing her PhD in health sciences with an anticipated completion date of May 2024. Over the last five years, she has specialized in evaluating and treating infant feeding and swallowing in the neonatal intensive care unit and assessing adult dysphagia in medical and surgical intensive care units. She is a certified neonatal therapist and certified lactation counselor. Rebecca has served on various local, state, and national committees. She served on the Executive Medical Committee for Texas Speech-Language Hearing Association, ASHA's Special Interest Group 13, Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders Professional Development Committee, Dysphagia Research Society's Website Communications and PR Committee, and the Dysphagia Research Society's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. She has presented on numerous occasions through state associations and ASHA on neonatal intensive care and clinical supervision. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I'm super excited. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you. So thank you for for accepting. So yeah, tell the people just a little bit about yourself, who you are. So I'm Rebecca Smith, and I've been a speech pathologist for about seven years, and Most of my experience was in the acute care setting. I worked in a level three NICU for about five and a half years, and I made a transition recently to a university clinic. So 
that I could focus on getting dissertation support. And I have always worked with um, like birth all the way through geriatric, which I think is really interesting and and fun. And it keeps my day um, pretty, pretty unique. And I think that it's um, a really special blessing to be able to help patients have some of their first meals and then turn around and then also provide that last meal for patients as well. So I feel extremely blessed in my career and I have been um, volunteering for ASHA 613 since 2020 as a professional development committee member. And I've really enjoyed doing that. I've met some wonderful people. I've been a Meta Soapy Collective content contributor for a little bit. And it's been really, really fun. And um, I'm also a volunteer for Dysphagia Research Society website and public relations committee and their diversity, equity and inclusion committee. So I think volunteering in the field has been really rewarding. And I, it, it, when I've been in pivotal moments in my career, making decisions about long term and the next steps, I've met some wonderful mentors along the way that have been there for me. So yeah. that's a little bit about me. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. So, so where do you want to start? Cause I think, I think you're an interesting clinician and that you have a lot of experience with NICU and PEDS. And I think so many people are always constantly seeking, how do I get into this setting? What's the big secret? What's the big breakthrough moment? So if you can just sort of talk about a little bit about your your career path as it's taken that. Yeah, I would love to do that. And I always get asked that question. And although I'm not currently practicing in the NICU, I am still speaking on that topic a lot, serving as a mentor for others. And I've really made some connections to lately, especially to why knowing about the NICU is important for like NICU follow up and early intervention and things like that. So that's been a really, um, really fun to connect the dots there. But when I worked at a teaching hospital, I was about probably a year out of my CF and it was required as part of my job to get trained for the NICU. And at that point, I mean, that wasn't even that long ago. I just don't remember having a lot of understanding of what SLPs did in the NICU. I think that there's more and more NICU SLPs stepping up and educating younger clinicians and graduate students about the possibilities there. And so that is super good because that wasn't happening when I was, when I was a new clinician, I was like, man, like, what do they even do in there? Just like whole babies, you know what I mean? So it was part of my part of my requirement for my job that I took. And it was a wonderful experience. And I think that that first hospital I worked at was especially challenging because of the relationships between nursing and therapy, which is usually a problem everywhere. But it was especially a problem where, where I originally worked. And I think that it's just, um, you know, a work in progress everywhere. But I ended up taking another job in a community near where my parents lived. And it was more of a community-based hospital. It wasn't a teaching hospital necessarily, but it was still level three NICU, which there's a level four is the highest that provides specialized surgical care and um, trach and vent support for premature infants and um, babies after they have reached term And our hospital didn't do that, but we did deliver micro preemies, 22, 23, 24 weeks and special diagnoses. And I actually saw a lot more complexity in that more rural area hospital. I think it's because there was not a lot of other services around. And 
I had really the opportunity to establish a great relationship with nursing in the like about three years that I was there. And that was that was a really super rewarding experience. I was the primary SLP in that NICU, whereas before we all shared in the caseload. But I, I do think they're having one primary person there every day is really helpful for establishing those relationships. And as far as getting into the NICU goes, I, I always tell my students the good and the bad associated with being in that setting, because I think that a lot of times just in social media and the SLP world in general, we're not as honest as we should be about some of the challenges that go with that setting, not just from a relationship with nursing standpoint, but um, losing patients, really troubling social situations, um, just constantly being in a position of advocacy all the time. It's kind of like if you work um, like now, I work in an outpatient medical clinic and I do these video stroboscopy and I do bottle lactation support, PF, you know, PFD support, pediatric feeding disorder. I do a lot of different things, but it would be like every time I saw a new evaluation, my boss coming up to me and being like, what'd you recommend? Why'd you do that? Well, should you have done this instead? That's what's like working in the NICU. But it's, and it's not like, it's not even the best ones are like that. It's just, you know, it's just something you kind of have to be ready for. So I always tell my students to just be prepared for that, you know, be open to doing maybe your clinical fellowship and like an early intervention or NICU follow-up um, situation, PRN for a hospital that has a NICU. I think it's often easier to get into a NICU if you're working in a hospital first and servicing other floors. I found that hospitals want to hire their own people as opposed to really um, well-qualified outside people. You know what I'm saying? So so that's kind of what I, what I tell them. And I recommend like the national association of neonatal therapists feeding matters a lot because they have student discounts and, um, some free CEUs and Ignite mentoring group, which Jenny Reynolds, who was a huge mentor to me when when I was early in my career and even now, she works at Baylor and does the Nikki Fees course. Do you know her? She's so fabulous. Her hair is so big and it's just like the it just to me, it's like just tech <laughs> Texas in like a human and it's just everything friendly and warm and wonderful about Texas. <laughs> Um, which I don't, I don't live in Texas right now. I'm here visiting family right now, but um, I live in North Carolina now, but um, I still miss Texas and love it. And Jenny Randall was just Texas, but she does the night mentorship group and she um, it's just wonderful. And so it is a little bit pricey, but I think it's really a great program for people um, who want that extra, extra hand, maybe who are thrown in NICUs that are, that are smaller and you're less connected and, like I, the girl who took over my job when I left, she's wonderful, but I only had a certain amount of time to train her. And so she's doing the mentorship group because she wants that extra, extra bit of help. Oh, that's awesome. Do you have any, any words of wisdom or advice? Like you said, I I've heard this a lot in that hospitals don't want to, even if there is somebody extremely qualified outside of the hospital network, they're more prone to hiring somebody from within, even if they don't have any NICU experience. 
Do you have any, you know, advice for if there's an SLP that is wanting to step into the NICU and take over that role, but just isn't really sure where to start or doesn't have much experience in the NICU? I definitely think that getting getting to know people is the best way to start. So making those connections with speech language pathologists who are already in the NICU, educating yourself on why understanding neuroprotection, family-centered care, interdisciplinary team models, why all of that is relevant to practice even outside of the NICU, um, putting yourself in an early intervention where you're doing some bottle and breastfeeding um, and working with former preemies. I think all of that is is really beneficial. And it can be, and, and then just rec- recognizing that even the most qualified people don't get jobs and like not being hard on yourself in that aspect, recognizing that whatever is meant for you will come to you and maybe being flexible in where you move and things like that. Um, I found can always put you in a position for a more rewarding career change in a way. If you, if you have the ability to, live outside of, you know, where you've always lived or something like that, just because, you know, sometimes people live in areas that just have limited opportunities or people get in those roles and they never move. And, but I I do want to say that I, before I took the job that I have now, I interviewed at a NICU and that, that same thing happened to me. I applied for the job. I had the credentials that they wanted and they hired from within somebody who didn't even really have that background instead of me. And it could have been just a personality situation because I do do a lot of things and I feel like that's not for everybody, right? Like some people want people who just come in and do their job there and then leave. And um, some places like people to be in- involved in a lot of things. So I think that not taking the decisions to go with another candidate too personally, being flexible on moving, making those mentoring connect, mentoring relationships and so that people can just think of your name and bring you up in conversation. You know what I mean? Well, I know this person who's looking for this job and, and leaving a lasting um, impression in the interview, I find is really important. I actually also applied for another job before this one at, I think it was, I can't believe I don't even remember that now. I mean, I work with patients on memory too. This is scary, but (laughs) it's so scary. I think it was the university of Michigan. And um, I remember I interviewed with the speech team and I did not get the job, but they felt so moved by my interview that they recommended other things to me that they said, hey, I remember you from this interview. We didn't give you the job, but there's these other opportunities out there. And I wanted to make sure you were aware of them. Yeah. And that kind of and I ended up, you know, at that point having another opportunity. But that was super that was super kind, I thought. You know what I mean? And I think, yeah. Yeah. I I love that you're bringing up this aspect because I think it's, it's so important for SLPs and and just humans in general to realize that sometimes you can have all the qualifications in the world, but it just might not be the right fit at the right time. I know, you know, we've done so much hiring for the collective and I plan to even more hiring for the collective this year. And sometimes I might get like the picture perfect candidate on paper, but as far as the team dynamics go, there might just be somebody else that fills that dynamic 
a little bit better from a personality. There's just so many things that, that go into it that like making those hiring decisions, it's like gut wrenching to me. It's, it's like, it's obviously something that I take a lot of pride in because I want to foster, you know, the specific culture and the collective. But also on the other hand, it breaks my heart when there's someone that I know is such a great fit, but for some reason or the other, somebody else might just be that much better. And I always, I try to just be so sensitive to it. Like, I promise it's not you. Like you are, you are a wonderful candidate. I promise it's us. And it's, it's such a hard dynamic. And it's something that I just want SLPs to, to know about that. Cause I know sometimes we just take it so personal and it's like, well, if only I took more CEU courses, or if only I had another externship, you know, and sometimes that stuff just doesn't matter. It's just something else behind the scenes that, that, you know, people that do the hiring don't always reveal. And sometimes we just don't, you know, because of confidentiality and things, we can't explain what exactly happened, but it's, it's something that's on my heart that I always want to explain to SLPs that I promise it's, it's probably not you, like you're, do, you're doing great. <laughs> it's so true. And honestly, I think that how a person fits in a team is probably the most important thing that administrators look at in addition to their current needs. You know, I've mm-hmm. interviewed for positions before when they could tell that I kind of wanted to do a little more than what they currently had in mind. And that was not something that they were interested in at that time. And so I think that it's, I think that it speaks to just your character that you, that you do have those feelings because a lot of people probably don't, but a lot of people do. So <laughs> some people yeah. might just be like, sorry, it's you, but no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, no, I, I think that that, that that's always a good thing to reflect on. So I hope that somebody heard this and felt spoken to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. So talk, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what made this big life change, this big transition from working in the NICU, working with peas to deciding you wanted to pursue your PhD? Yes. So I, I just, I really enjoyed my last role. I enjoyed it a lot, but COVID was a difficult time and we did not at the time have the staff to where I was able to completely not be on COVID units. So I was having to see NICU in the morning, change or whatever, and then see COVID and do my best to not go back and forth. And it was just an extremely difficult time, you know, seeing adult patients and NICU patients, seeing an uptick in premature births because of COVID positive mothers and COVID patients had poor outcomes, you know, in 2020. I think it's gotten a lot better for sure um, from what I, what I had observed from when I left to when it started. But I think that it just really um, made me kind of refocus my priorities. I was in a position where I felt like I had a lot of a lot to say and a lot to contribute to the speech community. And I was in a way in a position that a lot of people wanted to be in themselves after they graduated or when they got to their ideal career, because they're like, you can do everything. And you, a NICU is just a really desired setting right now, whether that be because it was kind of something that wasn't talked about. And now it is talked about or because key opinionators are, um, really just advertising what we do in the NICU in a really um, wonderful light. For whatever reason, it's just making everyone feel like they want to work in that setting. And 
And it was hard for me to give that up because I did love it, but also I felt like it gave me a unique platform and helped me contribute to the field in a really special way. And I just was like, well, you know, I have to think about what is going to be best for my mental health long term, what really speaks to when I, what, how do I feel most excited about this setting? Is it when I'm in the hospital working or is it when I'm, you know, educating my student who's in the hospital with me working? Is it when I'm teaching? And so through reflection, I decided, well, I feel like I most love this field when I'm able to educate my students clinically and in the classroom setting. And when I think about contributing to the field from a from a research perspective. So so I made that decision after talking to Jessica Kahn, because um, I was like, Jessica Kahn, she is, we practiced kind of in a similar area previously, and I had done some adjunct work for Stephen at Austin State University, and, and Jessica is full-time faculty there, and she knew that we had similar ambitions, and she talked to me about my options and was just a really great mentor in that way, and I ended up applying for Rocky Mountain University in their PhD program that's hybrid. So I'll go to um, on-site visits and a lot of the work is asynchronous and it's an interdisciplinary program. So there's PT and OT also enrolled, which has really been super meaningful to me to get to know those colleagues better and what they do better. And it's given a new appreciation to me clinically. And I've taken a lot of evidence-based practice classes on how to appraise research and in addition to, you know, how to formulate your own questions for for dissertation and future research line purposes. So that's kind of how I made that decision. And it was super hard. And I know that once you feel like you've made it to where you always wanted to be, it can be difficult to walk away from it. But I think choosing your own mental health and your own narrative versus what everyone else thinks that they want is is super important. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. So Thank you for sharing all that, Rebecca. It's super enlightening and inspiring. So yeah, if, if you want to talk a little bit about one of the things that I loved is you contributed to the MedSLP Collective recently on some qualitative research. And I really, I just loved your perspective on it. And I think just coming from a clinician now into your PhD work, um, you know, everything that we do is just really trying to, you know, bridge that research to clinic gap. And yeah, if you want to just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I... I feel like I took research courses in in graduate school, and I think that I've talked to colleagues about this before. We just it's a there's a new just enlightenment that occurs when you are reading research for the purposes of improving your patient care as opposed to doing it out of a requirement in, in graduate school. So I'm sure that I was educated on a lot of these principles prior, but I swear to you, I did not, I felt like I didn't remember any of it by the time I got to my PhD program. So I've taken two qualitative research classes and I really love qualitative research. I feel like sometimes, and I put this in the resource that randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews, because they are considered like the top tier of, of research, you know, on the Oxford um, levels of evidence scale. I believe that's what I what it's called. You can edit this out if I'm wrong, but um, it that is the most important or the or per, perceptually the most important 
types of research to in include in like your literature reviews for dissertation purposes. And when you're applying specific therapy or diagnostic modalities to your patients, because it's supposed to have the highest levels of general generalizability or whatever. So, so although that is, that is certainly true, so much of our field cannot be um, quantified. And so I think that when I was planning out my PhD curriculum, I recognized the importance of providing readers and people who might potentially benefit from my research with with direct quotes from patients and field observations and things like that that, that they do in qualitative research because it, it it provides it provides value, I guess, in a way that quantitative research cannot necessarily. Um, it also, I think, is super important when studying cultures. And there is specific research that is qualitative, that is ethnographic and like studies of cultures. And and so I just think that it has a lot of value in our field. And I don't think that it's talked about enough. And so that's why I definitely wanted to take another qualitative course. It's why I wanted to include some qualitative data in my dissertation. And it's why I wanted to um, create the resource for the collective, because I like the idea of examining transcripts of, you know, participant interviews and finding themes and connecting those dots for for consumers of the literature. I just think that 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 perspective is so valuable, but isn't necessarily a perspective that we take into account enough in the research yeah. world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I love that so much, you know, and I, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I've sort of just beat on this drum of evidence-based practice and just, of course, the research is so important. I love research. I would still love to do my PhD someday too, but just there's so much to be learned from clinical experience and patient, you know, patient preferences too, that I just don't think that we account enough into our clinical practice. You know, it's, it's very, you know, I, I don't know why, I don't know if it's just, you know, our lack of experience with rolling out this model or just saying, okay, well, there's no research to support this. So we might as well just throw it away, you know, or there's, you know, we, we need this level of research in order for this to be effective. And that's just not always the case. We just don't always have these beautiful randomized control trials for everything that we do. It's, it's true. And I think that it is, there is a call to action there that if we are you know, doing something with our patients that we have noted improvement with from just like our experience in the patient reports. I think that we need to do our best to try to contribute to the world of research, maybe through our own independent data collection. And I remember, um, I can't remember exactly who said this to me at DRS. I was fortunate enough to go to their um, nuts and bolts nuts and bolts aerodigestive and dysphagia conference last year. And I remember somebody there, which I hate that I'm not saying who um, said, you know, you can, anybody can be a researcher, collect your own little data, you know, from about your patients on the side and you can turn, you can turn it into a paper and it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be this huge like number of participants to be to be valuable. So I do think that if we are using 
modality patients that don't that have like mixed review evidence or not a lot of research out there on it, then it is, you know, I do feel like we should try our best to contribute to the field of research and and put papers out there on it and stuff like that. So, and I know it's a lot of work and super annoying, um, but like not everybody, you know, wants to, not everybody wants to do it. And I get that, but, you know, or connect with people who want to do it and say, Hey, I've been using this, this stuff and, like the evidence is mixed or there's not a lot of papers out there on it, on it. And I was wondering, um, because you have an interest in this from a research perspective, if we could partner or something like that, and you could tell me how to, how to go through these steps or, I mean, there's a lot of people who want to get involved in things like that. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what you're doing with teaching your students how to read the research? Yes. So I actually, um, We'll be teaching a pediatric dysphagia course in the fall, which I'm really excited about. I feel like it's super wonderful that App State offers that as an elective in addition to the adult dysphagia course. And it's actually more of an advanced dysphagia because we will be talking about some non-infant and PD cases in in addition to the infant and and pediatric um, population. But I, I talk to my students a lot about how to read articles through use of checklists such as like Castle and Joanna Briggs Institute. And I think that if you read your research enough, at some point, you don't feel as reliant on those to make sure you're taking everything into account when you're when you're doing an article review. But I, I still use them when I want to be real thorough because it, it prompts each of the checklists. There's a specific one for the type of for the type of study that you're looking at and you can go through and it gives you prompts on things to consider within each section and you just have to say you know did this meet criteria for a randomized controlled trial truly like i know it said that's what it is but here are all the things to consider when can you know the cause effect and um and or is this level of bias like so extreme that it's not as credible as the abstract would want you to believe. So it's, it's about really reading beyond the abstract, taking apart the article and thinking about are the claims as impactful as the investigator says and separating from like statistically significant results to clinically meaningful results. Because sometimes even if, you know, there wasn't enough subjects or there was a certain level of bias that, that you really can't like generalize this modality to your patient with confidence, there's still implications there that can be clinically meaningful and you can't ignore that. I, I think a lot of just talking students through that and maybe in from in the clinical setting, because in in the outpatient clinic I work in right now, it's connected to the university. I have a student assigned to me, and I function just as I would at the hospital, except it's connected to the university, right? So the students, you know, gradually assume responsibilities for patient care, and so I try to get them to look at articles that have something to do with the patient that's in front of them, just because I feel like it's more more valuable in that way. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I had a conversation with a researcher it was probably last year, but it was really interesting because it was along those lines of like 
it was this paper that that we were talking about and you know someone had said oh well that nothing is st- statistically significant in that paper so it's just useless and so i had the conversation with him and he said no you know he said Let, let's break this down even more let's look at it even more and he said it's about like 0.01% or something off from being statistically significant so technically is it no, but it's super, super, super close. So does that mean we throw out the whole thing? No, we at least consider that there is something here, right? There is something that might be clinically relevant. And I thought that what was in the paper was extremely clinically relevant. So, you know, I think it just lends itself to, you know, I, I just hate when we try to throw things out with the bathwater, right? Like throw the baby out with the bathwater, whatever that stupid saying is. But, you know, I think if if there is something to be learned from from the paper, even if it isn't deemed, you know, statistically significant, you know, those are the things that we as clinicians need to be a little more aware of. I completely agree. And and I think that now I have favorite people who put out papers, (laughs) which happens. And I think that sometimes I I love them and I'm like, I want this to be a really good paper, but just like separating you know, the author, if you know them from the quality of the study and really just trying to take your bias out of the equation before you even review the study yourself. Like, and that is hard too, because if you already have an opinion on a subject and then you're pulling literature that maybe contradicts your opinion, it's going to shape your view on whether or not it's clinically significant. And that's, And that's hard. I think that and I think that a lot of academics will talk about the importance of just putting your opinions to the side just because it creates another level of bias that I think Mm -hmm. the consumers of the literature don't even realize. So, yeah, it's tough. It's that whole confirmation bias thing that you're looking for that you're hopeful you can find. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it's I mean, I I love it. I really do love talking about it. And there's just been so many wonderful papers that have shaped my life and, and my career. And when I've gone to ASHA, which I've only been once and I went last year and I met some of those people that was super wonderful. And they're, and they're great people. And they just hop on like SIG 13 community page and answer people's questions. And so I just think that the amount of helpers we have in our field is just, it's super inspiring. And, and I just, I, every time I think, you know, I might have wish I would have done something else. I feel like grateful that I am where I am and doing what I'm yeah. doing. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that so much, Rebecca. Um, building outpatient service lines and what that involves. You want to dive into that? Yes, I do. I do want to talk about that because that's something that I'm doing now that um, I haven't done before, which is really, really fun. And I went to work for App State and I knew that I would be in the outpatient clinic and I was super excited about it because I wanted to make that change from acute because of all the reasons we talked about earlier. I also think that outpatient is sometimes considered not as challenging as acute care. Acute care is viewed as the most challenging setting. And I disagree respectfully with that because, because outpatient, you're responsible for fixing the people. And like, I I agree. (laughs) I I agree wholeheartedly. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, well, now they're coming back and they, they want me to get them better. Whereas in acute care, you just like send them off and on their way. And you're like, you know, you're going to, this next person's going to make you better, but it's not you. So now, so yeah. (laughs) 
So um, when I came, there was already a good relationship with ENT. So a lot of my patients are voice and swallowing. And so we do a lot of video stroboscopy and fees that Emily Horn Hornback, which I know has been a collective um, contributor and involved in the collective. She is my colleague at ASU and she is just wonderful. She's been an excellent mentor to me. Also, uh, Dr. Jordan Hazelwood is at ASU and is technically my PhD mentor, like unofficially. And so I've been really uh, reliant on them in the academic and clinical parts of my new role because it was a lot different than what I what I used to do, as in the patients are coming in, they're going home, they can do a lot more. So I found myself, you know, having to think, am I pushing them hard enough? Because they because it was like seeing people who are barely awake to like seeing people who can take part in their care. And so it's just really interesting. And I've enjoyed doing more and more voice and learning from Christy Knickerbocker and um, I did voice in the past. And one of my at my teaching hospital, actually, we had ENT that would come into the hospital and then we were able to do voice therapy and acute care. But I feel like that's super rare and not something that a lot of people have access to. So I definitely had to kind of dust off my brain and use new modalities that I that I hadn't used in a while and um, consume more literature and more information from key opinionators in the field of voice. And so that's been really fun. And I also recognized when I got there that there was not a lot of pediatric dysphagia specialists in our area. And not that I'm sure that there is another person who does infant feeding, but I'm not sure who they are. And I've kind of reached out. I know there's another occupational therapist who does pediatrics, but I'm not sure what she does with infant feeding And then I'm the only speech pathologist in the area that does lactation support, to my knowledge. So what I've been doing is through our research chair, connecting with local pediatrician offices and providing them education on uh, the Godet et al. 2019 consensus paper, the formalized definition of pediatric feeding disorder through the ICF framework, and then diving into the four domains and then talking to them about the services we provide at our clinic just so that they're aware. And this is not only my clinical interest, but it's my research interest because Feeding Matters has the infant child feeding questionnaire six item screening tool, and they have a desire for pediatrician offices to use it with their patients birth to four because two or more positive items on the screener is supposed to reveal problematic feeding from like a picky eating issue. And so I'm interested in long-term clinically validating that somehow and raising awareness of that tool and seeing how pediatrician offices, you know, can use it to increase their own recognition of what PFD is and then also increase our referrals as well. So it's kind of like the whole like, in my head idea that, I mean, people know about it. It's not like this is like the first time I'm talking about it, but it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a long-term goal. And right now I'm taking short-term steps to, to building that service line. And Michelle Dawson was one of my uh, mentors in terms of creating um, uh, the space for PFD in our clinic in terms of what we needed from a documentation standpoint. And then, 
Bree Millick is also a friend and she spoke to me about some of the resources that were available, samples you can request, things that you can get for your clinic that I didn't even know about. And so that's been really um, rewarding. So awesome. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. I think I have such like a personal, you know, connection with that, just with my son being in the NICU with feeding issues and there just was no help in the NICU for him. And then just even when we left the NICU, you know, even PT and OT were like, okay, well, what are you, where are you going to take him to work, you know, to work on feeding? And I was like, I don't know, nothing exists. So great. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's something that just long-term, I really am passionate about, you know, helping these clinics that want to offer these services be able to do that. And I think that there's a thought process because I've heard people say that it's, that it's a niche, like it's a niche, like SLPs who focus on pediatric feeding disorder but I, I don't think it's niched as much as it is like there's just not anyone who does it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I think, yeah, yeah. I think that that's just because, you know, maybe there's not enough education offered on that and in graduate school. But then those settings are the ones that are more likely to hire clinical fellows as opposed to pay those settings that service adult dysphagia. So it's just very weird. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all that. This, this was just an awesome conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any, any final thoughts for the people or anything else you'd like to share? Thank you so much for having me. I definitely feel that it takes a minute to figure out what you're supposed to do in our field because it's so broad. So giving yourself that grace of changing settings, you know, adjusting your hours to where it makes sense for you and your family. Um, if you want to pursue that terminal degree doing so, I, I think that it's okay to not have it figured out immediately. And even to make that switch later is okay too. I think that, and if you get into that setting that you want to get into and you realize it's not serving you and you're just emotionally drained from it. I think it's okay to make a switch. So always being open to that and always being open to approaching the literature with an open mind and a critical mind at the same time, Um, because you can be open-minded, but then also a critical appraiser, I think is really important. Yeah. Awesome. I think those are wonderful final thoughts. So thank you so much again, Rebecca. I really appreciated this. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.